0: It was Charles Spurgeon who said, a Bible that's falling apart usually belongs to someone who isn't. And what he means by that is not someone who isn't riding through the storms of life. We all are going to go, like Habakkuk, through the storms of life, and we're going to struggle with God. We set the stage last week in this book as, as the prophet of God begins to lament and argue with him. You must entrench yourself into the word of God, so that when the storm comes, you don't fall apart. In regards to the book of Habakkuk, I call this a defiant faith in a devastated world, and we learned last week that the name Habakkuk means embrace and wrestle. I talked about my wrestling career in junior high. I am defeated. And you can either, when life is a struggle, run from God or what Habakkuk is doing, wrestle with God, which causes a defiant faith. Running from God is always based on subjective, your subjective understanding. Wrestling with God and coming to his word is always objective. It is the measure, the standard the measuring tape of truth and righteousness and who God is and what He thinks. Guys, don't forget to get your measuring tape on the way out with the men's ministry logo on it. You know, subjective, another word for that is one sided. That's what happens when you run from God. You become one sided. When you wrestle with God, it's subjective. Another word is fair, it's fair, it's right. I don't know if you've ever heard of the Jefferson Bible. It was created by the third president of the United States, Thomas Jefferson. He was a man of science, not miracles. He liked Jesus. He liked Jesus' moral teaching, but he couldn't reckon with miracles and supernatural things that Jesus did, and so he dissected them. He separated them and created his own Bible called the Jefferson Bible. He took a razor blade and went through gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and he cut out the portions of scripture that he liked. And he put it in his own book. He called it the Jefferson Bible. And all the stuff that he didn't like, which wasn't just the supernatural miracles, it was also things that In his mind, subjectively, he didn't want to believe in. You see, we all struggle with who God is. We have to wrestle with the truth of this from the inspired, supernatural word of God. See, in the end, Jefferson had just the Jesus he wanted... You know, we still have this principle alive and well today where people are creating palatable Bibles that fit their preference. They cut out the true stuff they don't like. I want to encourage you, don't buy that kind of Bible. There are a lot of great translations out there. I teach and preach from the ESV. I read personally from the New Living. These are translations. The NIV is typically in the pew in front of you. There are great translations out there. And then there are some that aren't translations, even though they're called that. And I want to encourage you to stay away from Bibles that are created by people where portions of Scripture are taken out This isn't something that just Jefferson did. This is something alive and well in the evangelical community today. And I wouldn't say I love you and care about you and I wouldn't stand up here and fight for truth every single week and move through the week praying for truth. If I didn't warn you of these Bibles, I don't want to offend people, but they're out there. If you're concerned, would you come and ask and talk to us? It's so important. This isn't my truth. Habakkuk is wrestling with God. He's struggling with who God really is and who he wants God to be. Man, I've been there. I think we all have wrestled with the truth of who God is. And who we want him to be, we all create our version of God. It's natural, but it's not right. And last week, Habakkuk laments to God and says, why do I have to look at suffering? Why do I have to go through this? He says to God, why do you let me see the injustice? And God responds back to him and says, Oh, I'm doing something, and you just wouldn't believe it even if I told you. And then he gives him an answer. And last week we learned that as far as Habakkuk is concerned, God's answer hadn't been an answer at all. In fact, it only created a new problem we're going to see today in Habakkuk's second complaint, this new problem of God seeming to be inconsistent. How, Habakkuk basically says, could a holy, loving God use a wicked nation to punish his own people? Habakkuk moves from last week feeling a serious burden to this week moving to beyond belief. This is unbelievable. Habakkuk basically is going to say, are you kidding me that's not fair his question comes out let me say this very carefully his questioning is from a heart of faith not disbelief his questioning is out of deep faith and he wants to understand the holiness of god Habakkuk is essentially struggling or wrestling to reconcile theology with God's word, what God said. So if you have your Bibles, Habakkuk chapter 1, starting in verse 12, we're going to move through verse 1 of chapter 2. Are you not, Habakkuk says, From everlasting? He's questioning God. Are you not from everlasting? Oh, Lord, my God. His faith is in his God. He's not separated from it. His faith is defying all natural around him. He hears God's word and he says, Are you not from the very beginning? Didn't you create and start everything? Oh, Lord, my God. My, this is personal to him. Holy one, shall we not die? God is holy. Listeners, friends, family, brothers and sisters in Christ, those of you who follow Jesus, do you know the holiness of God? Do you know what that means? The holiness of God, the holiness of God in one definition that I found refers to the absolute moral purity of God which reveals the absolute moral distance between God and humanity. That is a good place to start In answering the question, do you know or understand this vast concept of God's holiness? The holiness of God refers to the absolute moral purity of God. Most of the time, people stop right there. But it doesn't do the holiness of God any justice because this Holiness of God also reveals the distance between God and his humanity. Isaiah 6 and Revelation 4 are the two portions in Scripture where the holiness of God is referenced three times. Isaiah, the prophet, says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. The seraphim in Revelation 4 declare day and night without stopping, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Essentially, what they're saying is that God is holy, holy, holy. And I know you get that, but it's like saying holy, holier, holiest. The fact that the word is repeated three times indicates a state of completion and absoluteness, something that we, in our finite minds, full of sin nature, can't even comprehend, something that is absolutely pure and not contaminated in any way, shape, or form. He is completely without sin and absolutely set apart From perfection, R.C. Sprawl says the Bible never says that God is love, 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 or mercy, 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 or wrath, 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 or justice, justice, justice. It does say, however, that God is holy, holy, holy. Many have tried to understand and grapple with what holiness means when the Bible speaks to explain God's holiness. We see it in the Old Testament and the New, in Exodus 24, in Deuteronomy 24, and in Hebrews. The holiness of God is a consuming fire. Dangerous and terrifying presence, a consuming fire. When Isaiah encounters God, he cries out, woe, woe to me, I am lost, which is translated, I'm undone, I am ruined. You look at the holiness of God, from a biblical standpoint, and you will find a high view of God and a low view of man. But because it is ignored, the holiness of God, and Jesus is just kind of like a homeboy, a high view of man sets in and robs God of his pure glory. One scholar says that Isaiah and the angels don't, Flee the terrible presence of God or terrifying presence of God. The danger is real, but obviously so is the splendor. So terrifying and at the same time attractive, so immense, heavy, weighted, and wonderful. Is God's holiness. God is holy. Kadosh is the Greek word, or the Hebrew word, I'm sorry, Kadosh, sacred or set apart. It describes that which is anti secular. Listen to me for a second, because we're going to go into the deep end of the pool. I'm going to push you a little to think deeply, and I don't mean to offend or ruffle feathers, but we're going to go there because this is so important. The holiness of God is separate from secular culture, set apart from the world. The holiness of God is separate from the cosmos. That's the Greek word in the New Testament for world. It's in the Bible a bunch. Cosmos is defined as the total sum of human life in the ordered world, alienated from And hostile to God. Alienated from and hostile to God, the cosmos, and the earthly things which seduce us away from God. The cosmos, it goes on to say, is anti God and anti Christ. My personal journal in the book of First John, I write, "Make no mistake." The world, with its unbelief and enticement is spiritual kryptonite. Too much contact will quickly weaken the spirit and the flesh. It's a big deal. God's people, on a side note, have had too much contact with the world. That's why this is happening. And sometimes God uses the world, the Babylonians, to correct them. The world consists, the cosmos consists of things that lure us away from God. Gadgets and gizmos, man. One theologian says the goal of the world is self-glory. Please think about this. Churches, we're moving into the future. As you have thoughts about things that are going on here. High view of God. His holiness. Low view of man. In light of his holiness. Creates a heart that will look to a saving view of Jesus. The coal of the world is self glory, self-fulfillment, self-indulgence, self-satisfaction, and every other form of self-serving, all of which amounts towards hostility towards God. And the church has become infected with this culture. I'm, fi- I'm going to fight it. as opposed to God and others, it has become self. Truths of scripture have been hijacked and self has been put in the middle. Talked about it last week. God loves me just the way I am. No, he doesn't doesn't love me the way I am. Because if that was true, why in the world would he send his own son to die on the cross? If we're not careful, we will insert ourselves. And church, we're wrestling with this right now. I know it and I understand. And and I want to be gracious and I want to be kind, but I also want to be honest. When you come in here and you're focused on yourself, You have lost the game before you walked in the door because the purpose of Ecclesia and the church gathering, Vern at home, can I get an amen? The purpose of the church gathering is for the exaltation of God, not self. I don't like the music. I'm sorry. I understand you don't like the music, but it's not for you, it's for God and even The children can worship God with poor music. I'm not referencing Heidi because she can actually sing. She just tries hard not to, and they love her anyway. The point is, I didn't like the sermon. I didn't like this. It was too light. It was too dark. I know I'm ruffling feathers here. We are trying to create an environment where all those things... All those distractions are taken away, but that we can come together as followers of God and see the holiness of him and through the music and through the giving and through remembering and communion and the public reading of scripture and the sermon, hold me accountable. We're exalting God. And you know what happens when you eliminate yourself from the equation? You you exalt God and you edify each other. And do you know what happens when you exalt God and you edify each other, which is the church, the body of Christ? Evangelism happens. Because the lost world wants to be a part of something bigger than themselves. This is where we are moving at Sun River Church. And I'm gonna be unpacking this. Okay, I'm off my soapbox. The holiness of God refers to the absolute moral purity of God and reveals the absolute distance between God and humanity. In the world, not of the world. It was Jesus who said in John 18, my kingdom is not of this cosmos. In John 15, you were of the cosmos, of the world, If you were of the world, the world would love you at its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, the world hates you. James, the half-brother of Jesus, who was not a believer, we've talked about this, until Jesus came back from the dead, that'll pretty much fix that issue with your brother every single time. Says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the cosmos, the world, is at enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. First John 2 says, do not love the cosmos or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, listen, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of possessions is not from the Father, but from the world. And the world, the cosmos, is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. He who believes has life, eternal life. And Paul slammed his drum on this in Romans 12. Do not conform to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by the testing of your faith, you will receive discernment to God's will, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You see, Habakkuk knows theology, but he's looking at the world He's taken his eyes off. He's got knowledge of God's holiness. That's why he's asking these theological questions. But his eyes have shifted to the world around him. And we all know what, to our, what happens to our faith when we take our eyes off God and we look at the waves and we look at the world around us. We sink. We must look to God's holiness a glimpse. the holiness of God makes us aware of our sin, but it also empowers us, God's holiness empowers us to obey. It gives us hope. When you're in the storm and you look to the holiness of God, you have hope. That everything that's wrong with this world will be made right. If we fail to look and appreciate God's holiness, fail to know God and who he really is. This past week, Jim Boyd said, sometimes, Andy, God puts us flat on our backs to get us to look up. Now, that is not to say, quick side note, that every time somebody goes through a hardship or struggles or begins to wrestle through suffering with God, that they're doing that, they're going through that because they did something wrong. That is not biblical. That is not true. We are all going to endure suffering, even when we've done nothing to cause it. That is part of the fallen cosmos that God is redeeming back. But oftentimes when somebody gets cancer or somebody goes through something hard, they begin to think, what have I done and why is God punishing me? And so I just want to take a quick side note and say, that is from the enemy. God doesn't always do that. There are times, and in those moments, we do need to acknowledge God's holiness. We live in a society That oftentimes frames God or shapes God around its own cultural ideas. Habakkuk is wrestling with this same thing. Changing God, becoming a God that is palatable, is disastrous. And the reason why is because God's unchangeable. The God of the Bible is not inconsistent like you and I and every human being created. So we actually can stand on something that's solid for all eternity. Verse 12b, O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O God, have established, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. Habakkuk offers to the Lord the name Rock. He calls Habakkuk my Rock or O Rock, a metaphor illustrating that God is a firm foundation It expresses God as immovable and unshakable in his character. You see, Habakkuk knows this about God. He says, you are of purer. The word pure is commonly found in ceremonial realm of Israelite worship. The use of this word pure is an adjective describing an attribute of God's na- uh, nature that is morally perfect. It's linked right back to his holiness. He says, you who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. He's essentially saying, if God is too pure to even look or behold evil. How can he use evil people to devour his own people? Profound question. He's wrestling with his faith. He goes on, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up a man more righteous than he? Why, God, are you silent? I'm going to give an answer to that question. God's not silent. I know he feels that way. I've felt that way. And I know in those moments where you feel like God is silent, it is hard and it is heavy. God is only silent in one time of the human history. Between the writings of the Old Testament and the New Testament, it's called the intertestamental period, where God stopped talking through the prophets. He was still at work, but he was silent. And then Jesus came. His question, why are you silent, has been asked by both saint and sinner for centuries. God speaks to us today through his word. Read it thoroughly. But he has spoken, and he has spoken the loudest at the cross And he gave his son to die to redeem us back. It's because of the cross that God is both just and justifier. It's Romans chapter 3. Sin has been judged and a way has been opened for sinners, for you and I who believe, to be drawn back into his family. It seems like God is silent, but he's not. And in those moments when it feels like he's silent, just like Habakkuk feels like, why are you silent? Does not mean that God is not sovereign and does not mean that God is not sympathetic. I want to remind you of two facts that Habakkuk has forgotten. Number one, God all throughout history and in Habakkuk's life even has used tools to correct his people, war, nature, calamity, through the preaching of the prophets. All three prophets before Habakkuk were just preaching God's word and the people did not listen. Jeremiah was, in my opinion, one of the worst. He just, man, they just wouldn't listen to him. So he, finds, he basically said, fine, I'm not going to talk anymore. And then the word burned in his bones. So he's like, fine, I'm going to preach. It's an interesting book. We'll, we'll preach that someday. He often uses different tools to get his people to listen. And number two, and this is really important, and he, it applies to today. The greater the light, the greater the responsibility, Yeah, the Babylonians, they were wicked sinners. They were an evil people. They were godless. They were idolaters. They didn't know the true and living God. This is no excuse for their sin. We see this in Romans 1. No one will be without excuse. They only have general revelation of who God is. Every created human being on the planet who's ever lived has What Romans 1 calls general revelation. They have a general knowledge of God. It's visible in all creation. And then the second half of Romans 1, there are those who have a special revelation of God through understanding and knowing who Jesus is. They didn't know God, the Israelites did. The the Jews claimed to know the Lord, yet, they were sinning against the very law they claimed to know. Which of those two is worse? Sin in a believer's life has different ramifications than a sin in an unbeliever's life. All sin is equal in God's eyes. But the ramifications of somebody who professes to believe and then walks in darkness holds a different weight. Habakkuk has forgotten these two things. And as he's wrestling with the holiness of God, he is looking at the helplessness of the people. This is verses 14 through 15. This would be a pretty easy declaration of unbiblical social justice because he's forgetting the holiness, the justice and the wrath of God and the love of God and the commands of God and he's looking at a helpless people. He says in verse 14, you make mankind like fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet so that he rejoices and is glad. The metaphor comes from the idea of deep sea fishing. I've only been deep sea fishing once. I don't call shark fishing with Steve Johnson deep sea fishing. But that was fun. Verse 14 uses the image to describe plentiful population of humankind that God has created. People are like fish and marine creatures that are very populous. There are many of them, and then they're easy to catch. Habakkuk is basically arguing that Judah's never going to survive the attack of these savage Babylonians. And he's right. The Babylonians, they're way more powerful To them, life was cheap. Prisoners of war were expendable. Habakkuk is saying, people are like fish, and the Babylonians have these large hooks and nets, and they're just going to swallow up your people. This is a vivid visual picture that we see when he uses the words pull up, catch, gather, Again, it illustrates the process of securing large loads of fish in the net. And he, as he looks at a helpless people in light of the power of the Babylonians, he moves to his next section where he says, The enemy, the Babylonians, they're horrible. They're haughty. Verse 16 the enemy is horrible therefore he sacrifices his net and makes offering to his dragnet for by them he lives in luxury they worship their wealth they worship their luxury and in his f- food is rich is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? Genocide. That's what he's saying. They worship their sacrifices and they just keep killing and killing. They worship their own success. They worshiped the gods of dragnet and their fishing net. The Babylonians at the time had become incredibly wealthy under the leadership of Nebuchadnezzar. He had rebuilt and expanded cities. It seems unreasonable that the Lord would allow such spiritually ignorant people to conquer Judah in the land that housed his people in his own temple. What in the world? You can see Habakkuk saying, unbelievable. I can feel that myself. Like, that's not fair. To a certain degree, that's That's true. But it's subjective. There seems to be, sometimes in the Christian faith, I'm sorry, oftentimes in the Christian faith, there's a paradox. Have you notice that? A contradiction. There seems to be a contradiction here. It's hard for us to render contradictions, and so the cosmos, the world, when they look at Christianity, will see the contradiction, and they'll misdefine it and run. There are paradoxes all over life, even outside of Christianity, that we embrace But in the faith, we must remember and always remember the center of our faith is the paradox of grace found in the gospel that we all embrace for salvation. The gospel announces kindness and wrath, mercy and judgment, rescue and death. What sparks up and flashes On the cross is God's embrace of paradox, weakness as power, foolishness as wisdom. It was G.K. Chesterton who said, instead of avoiding truth claims, paradox is a mechanism for affirming a truth. A truth that is knowable, yet can remain mysterious, even beyond reach of reason, wrestling with these things, with these challenges, are a way through these paradoxes that our faith muscle is strengthened. We see this in James, and we see this in the the book of Hebrews. But to avoid questions, or to settle on half-truths, or superficial answers, or remain immature, or just ambivalent, not to face them honestly is catastrophic. And so you know what Habakkuk does at the end of his lament? He says, "I will stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower. I will look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer and what I will answer." Concerning my complaint. Habakkuk resolves to wait for the answer from the Lord. He's gonna sit back in the literature here, the way it's written, the grammar is he's gonna fold his arms. What do you have to say about that? I think that's probably how I would respond. But he's got this confidence that God is going to answer. And do you want to know what God says? Do you want to know his answer to this whole thing? Come back next week. And we will look at the answer. Don't you just love that? Sorry. Pastor's got to have fun once in a while. This pastor's gone wild right there. That's about as much fun as we have. But how do we respond this week? Let me just close with some basic application here. What are we to think when God does something beyond our comprehension? What do we do, or what do we think, or how do we respond when our burden, like Habakkuk, moves from burden to, you got to be kidding me. How do we move from beyond belief to a defiant faith Faith, guys, always precedes understanding, not the other way around in Scripture. And so here are three steps I want to close on because we're going to pick this up as we move through the rest of this book, three steps towards a defiant faith that you can begin to make today. At the close of the sermon, I just want you to know, if you're in that place where you're ready to start taking these next steps, I will be down, elders will be down, we're here to help you follow Jesus. Step number one is appreciate God's character. The only way you can appreciate God's character is to read thoroughly the Bible. Notice I didn't say know God's character. Because appreciating takes on knowledge and gives it as an action. Appreciate his sovereignty, his holiness, that he's in control, his love and his grace. Appreciate God's character. Accept God's sovereignty surrender to God's control we want control in our lives that keeps us from a defiant faith how do you accept God's sovereignty well as you're reading thoroughly you know where I'm going now don't you you have to learn to think deeply you've got to go into the deep end of the pool and then allow God's purpose this happens when we listen carefully you cannot do this by yourself That's why the church must gather and be together. We stand as we close and worship through music.